Um, we're going to continue our series now in Psalms. So if you have a Bible, uh, crack it open to the just about the middle. The Psalms is basically in the middle of the book here. Um, it's page 448 in the Black Bibles you'll find under the chairs. And we're going to be in Psalm 4 this week as we continue our series called Collide. Emotion meets truth in the Psalms. In the Psalms, we have this uh, beautiful example of a healthy spiritual life. A healthy spiritual life can be practiced in the privacy of your own private prayer closet and also at the uh, corporate, large level of corporate gathered worship, right? The Psalms was a corporate hymn book for the Old Testament people of God, and it's also the prayer book that we go to again and again when we're struggling, when we're hitting hard times. And so in both large formal gatherings and in small intimate times of prayer with God, in both places, you see this dynamic of bringing your real struggles before a holy God. Coming before God and saying, God, I know that you've promised these great things, but right now I'm struggling and I'm not seeing all of that promise in my life. Help me, God. And so we're going to see that from a lot of different directions, a lot of different lenses throughout the Psalms. This week we're calling it Collide with Prayer. Collide with Prayer. We're going to be tempted to not bring our stuff to God. We're going to be tempted to not talk to Him Anymore, But we're seeing this great example here of calling out to God. God, hear me. God, talk to me. God, help me. And that's the dynamic that we see in Psalm chapter 4. We don't know the exact circumstances. We just know that David, the author of this psalm, is in a difficult place. And he's calling on God to pull him out of this difficult place. We know that it's a place of difficulty. Some people believe it's just a continuation of of the rebellion of his son Absalom, right? We saw that last week. It was explicitly stated in Psalm 3. This was during the rebellion of Absalom. And then some people think it's during a drought because one of the king's jobs was, you see this in the Old Testament law, in their worship, they were to pray that God would provide for them. And so some think there's a rebellion going on in in a time of drought. We're not sure it's the exact circumstances. We just know that people are pushing back against David as king And people are pushing back against the idea that God can really save them out of whatever difficult uh, circumstance they're in. So whatever circumstance you're in, this can apply, right? Whatever circumstance I'm in, this can apply. Because we're either uh, in a difficult circumstance right now, right? Uh, Or we just came out of one. Or, sorry to say, you're about to go into one, right? And so no matter who we are, we can relate to this. He's in a difficult place calling on God, praying to God to answer To help him. So he says in Psalm 4, it says, To the choir master with stringed instruments. So that gives us good reason to use stringed instruments, right? Uh, He says, A Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let me pray for us. 
God, we pray that you would teach us from your word. We thank you for the model of David and his difficulty calling out to you. And God, I pray for us that you would give us the faith uh, to try again, the faith to pray again when we may be in a, a place of disappointment. We may be in a place where we feel like you're not answering or we don't want to risk. God, we just ask that you would give us the faith to pray. Help us to be a people of prayer. Help us to call out to you. We pray that you would answer us, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember a uh, movie I saw when I was about five years old. In this movie, these people were trying to escape from some bad guys. And it was a very dramatic scene in this story. Uh, they were escaping from these soldiers. They were chasing them through a battleship. And they found uh, this chute where they could jump down a hole to escape from the soldiers. Uh, the, the good guy's name was uh, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. Right? I don't know if you all have ever heard of this movie. It's called Star Wars. And so these bad guys are chasing them. These stormtroopers are shooting at them. They jump down this hole, and where do they end up? They end up in this trash dump, right? It's wet, and it stinks, and now they're all fighting with each other. And then all of a sudden, a giant snake appears and grabs Luke Skywalker and pulls him under, and they're scared, and they know what's going on. And then all of a sudden, it gets kind of eerie and quiet. Luke pops back up, and the snake goes away, and they're like, what's going on now? They're not sure what's going to happen next. They start to hear the creaking of metal, and then the sides of the room actually start closing in on them. It's like a giant trash compactor. It starts to just squash them, right? And so the room is getting smaller and smaller, and they're screaming and trying to get the robot to pull them out, right? And as this is getting closer and closer and squeezing tighter and tighter, for me, a little five-year-old with claustrophobia, it was, it was pretty terrifying, right? I mean, I'm thinking they're just going to get squished. And I share that story because that picture of getting squeezed into a tight place is exactly what the scripture is saying here when David is crying out to God. He says in English, in our, most of our translations, it says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. That word distress is literally a tight place. When everything was squeezing in on me, it says, you have, in the past, you've given me relief. And that word is literally, you've widened the place for me. And so we have this word picture of things squeezing in. As I said earlier, we're all either coming out of a tight place like that or heading into a tight place, but we've all been there, right? Where we just feel like everything is crashing in on us. And that's what David is praying. He's saying, everything is crashing in on me. Will you rescue me? It's happened before. God, you've pulled me out of these tight places before. So now will you answer me again? And that's, that's the kind of pushback I want us to have. I want us to be a people that say, God, I've seen you be faithful in the past, so I'm calling on you to answer me. Answer me, God. Help me. Save me, God. David gives us a model of, of basing his prayer on how God has shown himself faithful in the past. And there's going to be a lot of different things that are going to tempt us to not pray anymore, to not call out to God. Sometimes we feel like when we have called out to him, he's not answering us. He's not He's not responding, right? Sometimes you pray and it just, it's just silence. You, you don't feel like there's an answer. Uh, my assistant Jim shared this song with me by Andrew Peterson that says, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod. And the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Sometimes we don't feel like there's an answer. And so we're tempted to give up. We're tempted to not pray. 
anymore. But here we have this model of when times are tough, pray. Call out to God to answer you. He may not always answer us in the timing we want. He may not always answer us in the way that we want. But we need to pray. We need to continue to pray. The first uh, obstacle that we have to overcome are lies. Uh, So we're to pray through lies. Pray through lies. We see that in the first couple of verses. If you look at them again, verse 1 is that just that call. This is what the psalm is about. This is what he's calling out to God. It says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So David's begging for him to answer his prayer. And then we get context here in verse 2. He says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So we have this contrast of David saying, Know that the Lord will answer me. But he's saying, oh men, you've turned my glory into shame. You chase after vain words. You love vain words. You seek after lies. And we need to recognize that there's always a context of of lies in this world that we live in pushing back on us, telling us lies like God doesn't care or God's not answering or God's not there. We have to have a countercultural faith to pray at all. We have to believe an amazing thing, and that is that God is both powerful and God is good. I would say that in our church especially, we need to be careful of this because we're a very teaching-oriented church, and um, I don't know about your heart, but where my heart leans sometimes is, is wanting to have all the answers and wanting to study my way out of a problem. Um, maybe you're not as bad as me. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm a nerd. So, you know, I kind of go to studying oftentimes. But we should go quickly to prayer. We should call out to God. We should seek him in his word. Yes, and we see that in the Psalms too. But we should pray. We should say, God, help me. God, help me. God, guide me. We should seek him and not just think that we're on our own. A a book that I've recommended a lot over the last year is A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And I decided I should just kind of recommend it every couple of months. Because every time I recommend it, I get an email like two weeks later that says, you know, you keep recommending that. And I finally read it, and it's changed my life. So I'm just going to recommend it again. One or two of you will go out and buy it again. But it's this great book. And one of the things that he shows is how, as Christians, when we know that God is there, and God's great, and God is sovereign, we can sometimes lean towards a functional or practical deism. Right? Deism is this idea that God just makes everything and then leaves it up to us. We need to be careful of that, that we don't fall into that thinking that God's not still relating to us in a dynamic way through our prayers. We don't, we don't have to understand how it works, right? I certainly don't understand how all that works, but I know that God is there and that he wants me to pray and he wants to interact with me through prayer. And so we need to push back against the lies that, as David says in verse 2, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? What is David's honor? Well, at one level, it's just probably his, just his earthly honor, right? Like his reputation, he's a good man. People are talking trash about him, lying about him. But at another level, we see repeatedly through the Psalms and through David's life that his honor, his glory, what was valuable to him was God himself. So not only did people talk trash about David, but people talked trash about David's God. And people would say things like we saw in chapter 3 last week, there's no salvation for you in God like the serpent whispering into Eve and Adam's ear. There's no salvation for you in that. You need to be your own God. You need to do your own thing. And so David pushes back against those lies. And the specific way that he pushes back against these lies is the way he answers in verse 3. So there are lies being whispered in our ear. 
Our, our glory is being turned into shame. Our honor is being turned into shame. People are denying our God, denying the honor that we should find in Him, and, and whispers are being told to us. I found a picture that I think is kind of an illustration of this from, from literature. Anybody seen the movie or read The Lord of the Rings? Y'all know that, that trilogy or sep- septilogy, whatever. It's like six books or three books. Um, this is Wormtongue, right? And this guy was this creepy character that would whisper lies into the ear of the king. And the king became more and more decrepit and impotent as he listened to the lies of Wormtongue. And uh, the hero, well, one of the heroes of the story, Gandalf, finally breaks that power of Wormtongue that Wormtongue has over uh, the king so that he's now free, not listening to him any longer. And what I want to encourage you with is that there's there's always someone whispering those lies into our ears. There's always people pushing back and telling us, you can't trust God, you can't rely on him, it's stupid to pray, don't, don't hope like that. There's always that cynical lie telling us, sneering at us, that it's not worth it, you shouldn't try, it's not cool to pray, it's not cool to hope in God. And I want to challenge you that David says here, and I think the rest of Scripture says, no, he, he is a God of hope. He's both all-powerful and he's good. And he's gracious. So the way that David specifically answers this in verse 3, he says this, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So the second part of that, the Lord hears when I call to him. So David's just saying, no, God will answer my prayers. God will listen to me. God hears when I call to him. But what's this first part mean? He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. If you're like me, as a, as a good postmodern kid that grew up in the 70s and 80s, that sounded kind of arrogant to me. That, that, didn't, that didn't quite sound right as, as uh, a person of our culture. That sounded a little, um, that just sounded a little arrogant, right? Like, I'm a holy person, so God will answer my prayer. Doesn't it? Does it have that ring to you? It says, no, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. We've kind of been taught in our culture to never you know, talk about ourselves as being saints or being godly. What I think David is doing here is I don't think he's bragging. What he's doing is he's talking about the character of God. He's not necessarily emphasizing, look at how awesome I am, look at how godly I am. No, he's saying, know that Yahweh, the great I am, the covenant Lord of the Old Testament, sets apart a people for himself. Know that that's how he operates. Know and be confident that he is a loving, adopting, choosing God that is calling a people to himself. Know that. Know that the Lord sets apart a people for himself. Believe that. That's at the heart of all the covenants of the Old Testament leading up to the most beautiful fruit in the new covenant that we see of of Jesus dying to claim a people for himself. God has been chasing after us. And we see that most clearly in the cross that he died to take our sin upon himself and to give us his righteousness, to, to reclaim us as his own. He set apart the godly for himself. It's not about how godly we are. It's about this God that sets people apart and says, you're mine. I'm going to make you mine. We know that the godly are sinners that God is changing. That's what it means to be godly. What it means to be godly is to be a sinner who is forgiven. So just bumbling sinners like you and me, God is setting us apart for himself. He's choosing us. He's adopting us. He's claiming us. He's bringing us into his family. And that's the beautiful story of good news that we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. David says this is the kind of God he is. He's a saving God. 
We see a beautiful picture of this in the Abrahamic covenant, right? So if you go way back into Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, you see the Abrahamic covenant where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And in Old Testament covenants, Middle Eastern covenants, they would cut animals apart and they would pass in between them. They'd walk through the blood and that would be symbolizing, may it be done to me as it's been done to these animals. So they were sealing their covenant in blood. They were saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain and you don't keep your end of the bargain then may I be cut in half in the same way these animals are cut in half and they walk through that blood. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, we see God knocks out Abraham and God passes between the animal parts himself. God is signifying, I will keep this covenant even if you don't. If you don't keep your end of the bargain, Abraham, may those consequences come upon me. And we see that realized most clearly in Jesus Christ being split apart for us, being broken for us on the cross. That's the fulfillment of that Abrahamic covenant, as well as Jesus being the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant, right? And all the other covenants of the Old Testament. We see him fulfilling these covenants of promise, these covenants where God is saying, I am setting a people apart for myself. I'm reclaiming a people for myself. And David says, I know that's the kind of God he is, so I'm going to call to him, and he's going to answer. He may not answer the speed we want. He may not answer in the way we want, but he's listening to us and he is in a real relationship with us. So call out to him. So pray. The big application for this is just pray. Don't believe the lie that God doesn't care. That's one of the most insidious lies that pushes against us praying. Is this idea that God just doesn't care. He's too busy. He's got more important things to do. Pray. He he cares. He, He loves you. He's intimately involved in your life. A model for prayer that, that is helpful a lot of times if you're just really starting to get started with this and you're like, I don't even know what to do. You feel like you're randomly talking to God. One thing that's great is just praying through the Psalms, right? Reading a Psalm and then just talking to God in response to what you see in the Psalm. Another model is a model we kind of use for our worship service. Sometimes it's, it's uh, the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Supplication just means asking for stuff, basically like an old word we don't really use anymore. But A-C-T-S, we basically follow that kind of format, that kind of flow in our worship service. We start out just praising God. God, you made everything. We see that same order in the Bible. It starts out, first two chapters, God made everything good. And then we hit confession, right? We we realize our failure. We see that in chapter 3 of the Bible, the fall into sin. So we confess our sin, but then also we give thanksgiving for God's grace, that he's a saving God that took our sins upon himself on the cross. We thank God for that grace. We make supplication. We ask God for what we need. God, help me get out of this tight spot. I recognize that you're the kind of God that in the past gave your son Jesus to save me. I see that you're the saving God. That's the kind of stuff you do. You set apart the godly for yourself. You've pulled me out of tight spots before, so God, help me with this. And we trust him, and we pray, and we talk to him about it. I'd encourage you to be a people of prayer. Uh, if you pray a little bit, start praying a little bit more. If you don't pray at all, start praying. But I encourage you to take steps to be praying people. Talk to God. Pray through the lies. Resist the lie that he doesn't care, but remember that he's a God that sets apart a people for himself. The next thing that we see is we should pray through agitation. One of our other responses, so this first response is, is the lie that he just doesn't care. He's not involved, Right? So we answer that directly with the gospel. He is involved. He's a saving God, and we pray through that lie. The second thing is our own agitation. We sometimes think that we can solve everything ourselves, 
We, we think that through our own anger and through our own force of will, we can accomplish God's purposes, or at least our purposes, which often we think are more important than God's purposes, right? And so we see this in verse 4. Look at verse 4. He says, be angry and do not sin. Now, this word angry, uh, in the ESV, there's a little note at the bottom that says, or it could be agitation. I'm saying pray through agitation, because that's a word that kind of covers both sides of what this word means. It can literally be translated also as tremble. Um, And so some people translate it as tremble or shake. Uh, But I think anger is appropriate for two reasons. Um, I would say, first of all, because the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was translated before Christ, used the translation angry. Uh, And then secondly, Paul reinforces that in Ephesians 4. Paul quotes this and says, be angry and do not sin. He translates it in the same way. So it's a Hebrew word that could kind of just mean shake and tremble, but it can also signify anger. Um, And so he says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So we see a progression here through through anger. The normal Hebrew word for anger is kind of a funny word. It, it's usually just the word nose is the word they would use for anger. And it would signify like the way I understand it, kind of like getting red in the face or like if you see, you can tell, you can probably see my nose from the back of the room. It, like when your nostrils get flared or you get inflamed, right? Your nose kind of moves. And so in Hebrew, it's an idiom used for anger. And so a lot of times the phrase will be something like uh, a burning nose or a hot nose Uh, And if you're patient, they would say something like you have a slow nose or a long nose, right? So it's kind of a strange phrase. And so that's the most common way to describe anger in the Bible. But you can also describe it with the shaking, right? When you get angry, not only does your face get red and your nose get hot and you start breathing heavy, but you also sometimes will tremble, right? You You will shake. I have a picture here of a woman who is kind of exhibiting both sides of that. Both both Hebrew verbs are, are being shown here. Uh, you see her nostrils flaring. You see her hands shaking, right? And so that's the image we have of, of anger. It's this shaking, violent thing. And I think at its root level, anger is taking energy and pouring it out towards something bad to conquer it, defeat it, kill it, crush it, however you want to say that. But it's us using our strength to conquer things ourselves instead of trusting in God, right? And so... Here, we're told, settle down. We're told, settle down. Be angry and do not sin. And it's this movement away from anger towards peace. Right? It says, ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. And then he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So starting off, it, it, it's uh, ambiguous, right? It, it doesn't say, don't be angry. It says, be angry and do not sin. It's ambiguous in the Hebrew Paul actually makes it even uh, clearer that it could be okay to be angry. So in Ephesians 4, it's an imperative. In Ephesians 4, it's an imperative, which is like, you must be angry and you must not sin, right? It's like a command, be angry and do not sin. So that can confuse us. And and so what I want to say is that we can hypothetically understand that it's possible to have righteous anger, right? I mean, we can understand that. If you have a boss and some kind of abuse happens, you would want your boss to be angry, wouldn't you? I mean, that would only be appropriate. If, if your boss never got angry about injustice, you would kind of worry about their leadership. And so there's this concept as humans, we recognize there's a value to a righteous indignation, to a righteous anger, and we, we value that at some level. But the scriptures meets us there and says, you can only take that so far. You have to, you might start with a righteous anger, but you need to move quickly out of that. 
as soon as you can, you need to move out of that anger. And so we see this progression. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't use your anger as an excuse to sin. Right? Because we can say, I'm righteous in my anger, and so I'm going to go, I'm going to go take them out. I'm going to achieve justice on my own. It says, no, be angry and do not sin. He progresses. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Take a deep breath. Breathe in. He says in verse 5, offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. This can also be translated, offer the sacrifices of the righteous. Offer the kind of sacrifices that a righteous person would offer and trust in the Lord. In the Old Testament, these sacrifices looked like the Levitical sacrificial system you know, that Moses had ordained. And in the first five books of the Bible, we, we see all kinds of rules and regulations about uh, animals being slaughtered, grain offerings, all kinds of offerings. There's all kinds of details about that. And sometimes that can lose us. The cultural distance can, can make that kind of confusing for us. This is the parts of the Bible sometimes, if you're trying to read it, you might skip over some of those because you're like, this is a bunch of blood. I don't understand all this. But what I want you to understand is that repeatedly God is giving the message in the sacrificial system that we need a sacrifice. Some kind of payment needs to be made for our sin. There's a problem and we're separated from God. We can't enter into his holiness because our sin. And a sacrifice needs to be made. And so all these different sacrifices, they build the case. They foreshadow and point towards the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And so the way we understand this now, post-Jesus, is trust in the ultimate sacrifice that's been made in Christ. He is the sacrifice that's taken care of injustice once and for all. Romans says that through that, he's both just and the justifier of the wicked. So, trust in the Lord. So, we have to be trusting in the Lord and his provision, his sacrifice for sin, enabled to, to be able to deal with our anger. Does that make sense? You're never going to deal with your anger properly unless you're trusting in the sacrifices of God, unless you're trusting in the Lord to take care of things for you. It requires faith to be able to deal with your anger. Otherwise, you'll just be stuck in your anger. You'll just be riding your anger and using your anger to accomplish your purposes, probably not God's. In James, it says the anger of man can't achieve the righteousness of God. James makes that very clear in James 1. I'll read this quote for you. James 1 James is pushing back against self-righteous people that want to blame their problems on other people. We do that a lot, right? Especially if we're godly. We want to say, well, it's that other person's fault. James says this. He says in James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. James says, your problem is not that other guy, Right? My problem is not my friend or my neighbor or that bad person down the street or my spouse or my kid. My problem is my own sin. My problem is my desires that give birth to sin that brings forth death. James moves on and says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his, creation, of his creatures. So here James is connecting it with the gospel too. He's saying, recognize, don't blame other people for your problems, but recognize that God is the one that does good things. So here's a way to break it down. We bring bad stuff to the table. We bring sin. We bring our desires. We bring death. And God brings the fruit of new creation. God brings hope. Every good gift comes from him. That's our basic paradigm, right? If you want to break all theology down into just two boxes. You've got 
me bad, God good, right? Okay, it's, pre- it's pretty simple. James, James goes on, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, every person must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, meekness, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So James says, be meek. Recognize that what you're bringing to the table is usually sin. Don't stay in your righteous anger. Like I said, it might be possible for us to have righteous anger, but we can't stay there. We're not going to achieve the righteousness of God with our anger. It just it doesn't work. Paul talks about it when he quotes this passage. So Psalm 4, Paul quotes it in Ephesians 4. So if you want to go look this up later, in Ephesians 4, Paul quotes it and he says, uh, be angry and don't sin. He says, be angry and do not sin in Ephesians 4.26. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And that word opportunity is a foothold. It's often used as uh, in military terms. It's just a, a placement, a stepping stone for your feet. Uh, and the idea is that we're giving the devil room to operate in our life when we continue to boil over in anger. When we simmer in that anger, we let the sun go down on our anger, we're giving the devil foothold. We're giving him room in our life. Just from a practical perspective, if you're married, uh, sometimes you need to say, um, I'm tired, can we sleep and fight more tomorrow? Is that okay, right? Um, so just, you know, from a practice, don't take these things too literally, but just recognize that what Paul is saying is don't just live in your anger. Deal with it quickly. Deal with it quickly. Resolve it quickly. Be quick to forgive. Be quick to resolve your anger. He goes on in Ephesians 4, and he ends uh, several verses later, kind of comes back to the idea of anger and says in verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so again, we see this pattern, right? So we saw it in Psalm 4. It says, be angry and don't sin. Be silent, have peace, offer sacrifices and trust God. In James, he's saying, be slow to anger. Settle down, receive with meekness this outside righteousness, this good gift of new creation that God gives you. And then here in Ephesians 4, he says, put away your anger. Don't hang out in anger. Put that away, be kind. Forgive one another, just like Christ forgave you. In all of these passages, we're going back to the gospel. The gospel is the power by which we're going to forgive others and deal with our own anger. If you don't know the gospel, you're not going to be able to deal with your anger. If you don't recognize that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, you won't be able to put away anger and forgive others. Do you see, do you see the connection? So our, our challenge is to be forgivers, is to be those who continue to pray and offer right sacrifices to God, which in our context is remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Continue to count on what Jesus has done on the cross for us. Entrust that to him. Pray through that. Say, God, I'm angry. Will you help me? God, will you help me move beyond this? Will you help me to focus on what you've done? Will you help me to trust in you in the situation? The last thing I want us to look at is that we're to pray through suffering. We're to pray through suffering even when even when we don't get the answer we want, we're supposed to keep praying. We're supposed to keep trusting God. He says it like this in verse 6. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Who will show us some good? He's saying, there's many who will ask this. In chapter 3, we saw him saying, there are many, many, many who say there's no salvation for you in God. And now he's saying, 
there's many who will say, who will show us some good? Where is this God of yours, King David? Who's going to help us out now? And so they're, they're doubting. He says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And then David says something really interesting in verse 7. You've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. This is the supernatural peace that we talked about last week in Philippians chapter 4, where it says the peace of God surpasses all understanding. As we pray through our anxiety, instead of remaining anxious, as we pray and give that to Him in our suffering, the peace of God transcends all understanding. That will guard our hearts. We'll begin to be transformed from the inside out. So the way he says it in verse 7 is, you put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. We don't have a lot of opportunities to, to understand and trust this verse because we live in a country where our grain and wine abounds. Even in a time when our economy is bad, we're still the richest people in the world. We're still wealthy. We're still rich. We still have plenty. Our poor people generally have plenty. We're you know, if you don't understand how rich you are, that probably means you haven't traveled to other countries. You haven't seen how people live in third world countries across the world. We're wealthy people. The poorest of you here today, some of you are thinking, no, I'm poor. You know, I don't have this and that. No, you're a lot richer than the rest of the world. And so it's hard for us to understand exactly what Paul is saying here. But Paul is saying there's a supernatural joy that he has. It's greater than the joy of people that have all their needs provided physically. So what Paul is saying is the same thing again, or what David's saying. I keep switching back and forth. What David's saying is the same thing that Paul says in Philippians. David here is saying, yeah, that supernatural joy is better than having all my needs provided for. Even when I'm suffering, even when things aren't going right, God, the joy you give me is better than for those people that everything's going right for. And then he expresses it with the word peace, again reflecting what Paul says in Philippians. Verse 8, Psalm 4, 8, in peace... I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. I have a picture here of soldiers sleeping, catching a little rest. Uh, We have a lot of soldiers in our community. And I think it's interesting that God has put us uh, on this topic two weeks in a row. Um, One of the things that we do here generally is we just study through books in the Bible. Um, And so what that looks like is, is God gets to decide the topics we talk about more than I do, right? So I don't get to just kind of ride my hobby horse every week and talk about my favorite topic. Um, Now, in the Psalms, it's a little different because we're not preaching through every single one. But probably if I had micromanaged the series a little more, I would have noticed, oh, there's uh, talking about sleeping in peace in four and in three. And so maybe we shouldn't do those back to back. But it seems like God wanted us to talk about this two weeks in a row. So I don't know where you are. I don't know what your issues are with sleep. But apparently God wants you to hear this again. God wants you to hear about sleep. We just talked about it last week in Psalm chapter 3, and now he's bringing it up again. And I just want to recognize, for one thing, maybe it's because we are in a military community, and I recognize that military people probably than, more than any other uh, struggle in the area of sleep. First thing I want to say is I just want to say thank you for those of you that do serve in the military, because I recognize that one of the reasons you may struggle sleeping is because you've gone without sleep many nights so that I can sleep. I just want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for your service. And, and we don't want to belittle that at all. I also want to challenge you to get help if, if you continue to not be able to sleep. Because it's both a physical and a spiritual problem. We'll talk about the spiritual side in a minute, but uh, if you've gone long, long periods of time without proper sleep, your body chemistry begins to change, and you need medical help to reset that chemistry. 
So I would just encourage you to get the help you need, not to think you're crazy and just go, yeah, this is, this is just what happens to your body when you go too long without sleep. Your body starts to adapt and you start to get stuck in bad cycles. But I also want to challenge you with the message that he has here. Again, God is pressing this on us for some reason. He wants us to hear this two weeks in a row. He says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We cannot ever rest if God is not our safety. If it is all up to us, we cannot rest. We cannot cease. We have to be hypervigilant. But if, if God is really there, if he's really our shelter, we can trust him. We can say, I've done all I can do today. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to rest. And I'll get back up and fight again tomorrow. And so I want to challenge you that God may have this for some reason. He's pressing this two weeks in a row. He wants you to think about that. He wants you to trust him more than maybe you already are. I recommended a, a resource last week, a, a sermon by Tim Keller called The Wounded Spirit, which I think is a really helpful one that helps you to understand how chemistry, emotions, spirituality all kind of come together in our, in our um, physical and emotional health. The Wounded Spirit by Tim Keller. We also sell a book just back in our nursery by Archibald Hart, and it talks about stress and how we deal with that in our life. He's a Christian psychiatrist that talks about how the medical side of that interacts with good Sabbath rhythms and, and health and trusting in God. But I want to challenge you to trust in God, to follow the example of David and to pray through suffering. As you pray through suffering, as you continue to offer it back to God, talk to Him about your struggles and your suffering, He will give you that transformational peace. He'll give you that joy that's better than the joy of those who have all their physical needs provided for. I want to close with this song again that, that Jim gave me. Thank you, Jim, for the song. This is a great, great song. Andrew Peterson talks about the silence of God, that struggle when you don't feel like God is answering. He said it'll, it'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross, then what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. He says there's a statue of Jesus up on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone. All his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows, he never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. The aching may remain, but the breaking does not in the holy, lonesome echo of the silence of God. Where Peterson takes us is remembering that Jesus, Jesus faced that same silence. Jesus praying all alone in the garden. His best friends had abandoned him. They'd fallen asleep. They weren't there for him. He was crying out to God, sweating drops of blood, saying, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. He cried out, asking the Father, if there's any other way, let me have that way but he entrusted himself in the same place and said, not my will, but your will be done. And as Jesus entrusted himself to the Father, the Father used that to take away our sin, to relieve our suffering permanently. 
to, to seal our victory over death once and for all. So that we know whatever his answer to our prayer in the short term, however much we feel like he's answered or he hasn't answered, we know we have that permanent answer. He's promised he's going to make all things right. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. We can talk to you. You're the kind of God that is setting apart a people for yourself, adopting us into your family, making us your own. God, help us to continue to be in awe of that reality so that we would continue to cry out to you in prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. You may be dismissed. If you have any questions, I'll be up front for uh, 30 seconds, and then we're heading over for the, uh, the class. If you want to join us for the class, it starts here in just a few minutes uh, over this way. God bless you. Thank you.